This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener for the next uh, 60 minutes, we'll be taking people's questions. Maybe there's an issue you've been studying in Scripture and you're not sure as to its meaning or its application, or there's a challenge in your life, ministry, or home that you would like biblical counsel on, if we can be of help, uh, please feel free to call us. Again, that 843-EXCHANGE is 525-1859, 525-1859, South Carolina Exchange 843. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. All right, uh, great to be with you today, and uh, hope um, we can be of help and service to many of our friends. All right, Pastor, and we've got a number of questions that have already come in via email. John R. from Bluffton writes, I learned recently of Pastor Tony Evans that he subscribes to a person's salvation who hasn't heard the gospel. Even though they believe in a different gospel, for example, Hindu or Muslim, he said he believes they are covered under Jesus' paying the penalty for all mankind at the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. He specifically said in an interview that if a person is searching in their lives and does not hear the gospel message and believe in Christ, they will not be accountable but will be in heaven. Billy Graham also espoused this universalist response. I'm asking your thoughts, which he espouses against God's word, seeing as uh, you are aired on, or since he is aired on WAGP, I guess, is what he meant to write. Well, it's a a fair question. Um, Yeah, he's not aired on STS. STS is uh, only myself and my wife on the Friday edition, but he is aired on WAGP. Uh, Dr. Evans has taken a rather controversial position in that uh, he also dubs it transdispensationalism. He's the only person I've ever met who's used that term. Uh, Dispensationalism basically at its bottom line says that there's a distinction between Israel and the church, that God is not done with Israel. But it also recognizes that at different time frames in human history, God has worked differently with his people. It's not that God changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But the way he deals with his people sometimes changes. And so in one sense, we're all dispensationalists. If you're an evangelical Christian and you didn't bring an animal sacrifice to church last week, you are recognizing that there is a once and for all sacrifice that has been provided through Christ. So Dr. Evans invented this term, transdispensationalism, to say, well, at certain time frames in history and in certain places, God may deal differently with people in reference to salvation. And so um, he is quoted, and this is somewhat of a paraphrase, but you can go online, I'm sure, and find it. It's been some years now. As having said that, oh, you have some Hindu and 
He is earnestly seeking God as best he knows. Uh, of course, Hindus are probably a poor example, though he used that example because they are polytheistic. They recognize some 300 million gods. So right off, you know that they are denying Romans 1, that there is one God, and to come to the conclusion of polytheism, you have to deny what is plain. You have to suppress the truth of God, and you end up worshiping things and man and the creation rather than the creator who made those things. That's Paul's argument in Romans 1. So a polytheist uh, who's worshiping a totem pole and being in India, I still have pictured in my mind this man who he looked like a Holocaust victim, just literally a bag of bones. You could see every rib, and he was taking the family milk and pouring it at the base of the tree to worship the tree god. I can also see um, this one poor family that had their produce, and they're trying to you know, support the family, and this cow came up uh, on this dusty street and began to eat the vegetable stand, and the Hindu behind it was just thrilled that this cow god came and honored him by eating his food. Uh, Very, very sad, but that's where a lot of people in the world are. And, of course, India uh, is close behind China in terms of population. It's expected maybe next year or the following year that they will actually surpass China in the total number of people on the earth. But Dr. Evans' viewpoint was that if a person, as earnestly as they could, called on God, though they may not know that Jesus is God's son, that they could be saved. And that is gross error. That is inaccurate. It's not true. Um, And to his defense, this was in an interview that he had, but the interview was online. It was taped. And I've never heard him say that on the radio. Um, but what he said was really erroneous. So what does God say about the state of the unevangelized? I have a booklet on it. Uh, it's available at, uh, on Amazon. And if you just type in Carl Brogy, the unevangelized, uh, it will bring it up. And I answer this question in depth. We also answer it in our apologetic series in our class called the discovery class. But basically, this is God's answer because people, and by the way, this is a question that not only earnest Christians should ask, because we of all people who have been given stewardship of the gospel should care about the unevangelized, but it's also a question that many pagans ask, and sometimes not out of sincerity, but they ask it out of um, a defense to to try to discredit what you teach. You say Jesus is the only way to God, that there's salvation in no one else. And so their question is, and I've been asked this by college students in campus ministry, and I've been asked it by executives uh, when I did executive ministry and as a pastor. How is it that God can be just for sending someone to hell for having never believed in a Savior in whose name they never even heard? And the answer is, God doesn't send them to hell for that reason. He sends them to hell for even a more basic reason. So the Lord taught in the Sermon on the Mount that we are not to cast our pearl before swine, that when there's a time of utter rejection towards the things of God, you, you are at that point to withhold that truth. 
lest that pagan person just take it like a pig and, you know, stomps on it in the mud and, and, and just, you know, has a, takes holy things and disdains them. So the biblical answer is that God gives all men a certain amount of revelation, some knowledge about himself, and he does it really in a number of different ways. First, through the creation around us. And so Paul in Romans chapter 1 makes some very pointed statements about the creation of the world and what it should do, its implications on the believer. So he says that uh, what is evident about God is known to man. It's known within them, Romans 1.19, for God made it evident to them. How so? For, or it's a causal in Greek, because since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So even though they knew God, And so, by the way, sometimes you'll hear me say there's no such thing as an atheist, and there's not, because all men know there is a God. They know it through his creation, because the creation shouts the attributes of God, his invisible attributes. They shout his power. They shout his divine nature so that men are without excuse. So they knew God, not in a saving way like John 17, 3 describes, for this is eternal life, that they might know God, the only true God in Christ whom you've sent. Um, but they knew God's existence, yet they didn't honor him as God or give thanks, and so they became futile uh, in their speculation. So God has revealed himself to all men. Even in Romans 2, the same book, um, Paul says, for when Gentiles, and here he's using the term Gentiles as synonymous with a pagan. So the term Gentile sometimes is used to describe the nations of the world who are different from Jews, or sometimes it's used uh, to describe someone who's just a hardcore pagan. So Jesus will say, don't pray like the Gentiles. Uh, Some of the more paraphrastic translations would say, don't pray like a pagan. But that's the thought behind it. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. These not having the law are law to themselves and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. So Paul is dealing with people who've never seen a Bible. They never saw the Torah, never read Moses. And yet, he argues that they instinctively do the things of the law because they're a law unto themselves. How so? In that they show God's law written in their hearts. And so you can go as a missionary to some parts of the world, like Wayne Bauman, one of our missionaries, went to Papua New Guinea, and he went there to reach the Arumba people. It's only a group of about 28,000 people, but God cared about those folks. You say, it's such a small people group to reach. Well, God sees people as individuals, and he sees the souls of men. But when he arrived there, there was a certain moral code within the Arambas. They believed it was wrong to take your neighbor's wife, to take your neighbor's good, to murder your neighbor. Where did they get that? They had never seen a Bible because they had the law of God written within their hearts. And so the biblical principle is, is that when a man responds to general revelation, whether it's through creation, through conscience, and we might even add the care of God. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount reminds us that his reign falls on the good and the 
uh, the righteous on the unrighteous, and he causes the sun to shine on both. And that's just an expression of God's common grace, his general care for humanity. So when people see God's existence and they respond to that, they say, I know there's a God. I see him in the creation. I see that he cares for man. I see and feel him in my conscience. And a man responds to that light. The biblical principle is God gives more light. But there are times when God withholds light. So you can go to a place like India, which I've only been to twice to preach the gospel. But I went on one occasion. On that one occasion, over 800 people came to faith in Christ. It was all college students I was ministering to. And hundreds of them were Hindus. Hindus who had been grown up teaching, being taught polytheism. Poly meaning many, theism meaning God, many gods. And yet there was an openness there to the one true God and God brought them to himself. God can do that. And so Dr. Everins would be dead wrong to say that these people who have not called upon the name of Christ for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he quotes the prophet Joel and he takes that phrase and he applies it to the Messiah as it's originally written in its context in the book of Joel. Um, And then he, of course, in this context in Romans 10, applies it, of course, to the Messiah himself, who is the Lord Jesus. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Uh, And by a preacher, he's not talking about a formalized preacher like myself, but someone who's willing to proclaim the good news. And that should be every believer who's listening to me now who names the name of Christ. And how will they preach unless they're sent? So it is written, and he quotes Isaiah, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So the point is, is a person must call upon the name of Christ. Uh, There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so for someone to conclude that there's salvation apart from Christ, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way and every other way is a dead end street. He is the truth. Every other uh, philosophy or doctrine of God is a lie. Um, And I am the life. Without Christ, there's only eternal death. And for someone to deny Christ's uniqueness here is really to go against the tenor of Scripture. I mean, why why bother to... uh, Our church supports over 300 missionaries every month. Why bother? We we just gave a $50,000 gift by the grace of God to be able to build a uh, new uh, pastor's seminary in Rwanda. Why waste your time if a person can be saved? And and why give them more revelation to make them more guilty? That's the argument of Romans 2. Paul speaks of the Jew who had been entrusted with great things from God, and because of their lack of response, he, he said the goodness of God should have led them to repentance do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubborn and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation 
of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. So Paul is reminding us that in the final judgment, it's according to our deeds. And that is unfolded in a number of passages in the New Testament, as well as in the Old Testament that he's quoting here in Romans 2 and verse 6. Your deeds don't save you, but your deeds claim you. Uh, The root of salvation is faith in the living God. The fruit are your deeds. And of course, here with increased revelation comes increased accountability. So why even bother to give some of these people the true message of salvation? If they don't respond, it's only going to make hell that much hotter for them. So, look, it it was just a bad statement on his part. And sadly, Dr. Graham did the same thing on one occasion, actually two occasions, once in an interview with um, Larry King and a second time in an interview with uh, the pastor of the Crystal Cathedral, Robert Shuler. But he retracted both of those statements. So... He didn't say it exactly and as plainly as Dr. Evans did, but he made a statement such that Schuler could say, well, I'm so glad that you have such a, a wide view of the grace and love of God towards other religions. And he should have come right back and said, no, that's not my view. He didn't, uh, but he later did. So I don't want to dump that on Billy Graham. And you address this idea of, as you put it, um, I think you've put it in the past, light responded to leads to greater light. That's right. And you address that in great detail in your basic discipleship course. I do. So we offer a course at Community Bible Church called um, the Discovery Class, but online it's called Basic Discipleship. So I've been redoing all of those handouts so that it's user-friendly. A number of churches in the country use it. And I say, you can use it. Just leave the copyright on it. Search the scriptures. You can use it as much as you want. It's been translated into Mandarin Chinese. In fact, we were before COVID supposed to go over there and train some 4,000 Chinese pastors. It's being used in the Ukraine. Um, so it's just basically a course that walks you through the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And that's sadly what a lot of Christians do not understand today. If Billy Graham was right, he did say that in his judgment, and I respect Billy Graham. I think he he made an error in judgment uh, when he made the statement and snuggled up to Robert Schuller, who was a false teacher on that occasion. I think it was a mistake, but many times he, he would try to go on to platforms that other evangelicals wouldn't go in order to reach them for Christ. So he would allow, say, a Roman Catholic bishop to sit on his platform to get the Roman Catholic churches to come to his crusade. Now you had men like Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a great Bible expositor, who took tremendous issue with that and said, no, you're, you're giving endorsement uh, to false doctrine when you do that. But lay that aside, um, he, he clearly retracted those statements. But we do have this course that is available, and part of the course is the 10 most asked questions of Christianity. And one of those questions is, what is the state of the unevangelized? And that is available in booklet form. I don't make any money, so I'm not selling books here today, but it is available at Amazon. It is difficult to be all things to all men and stop short of error, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And and there's no question that, you know, there are times when, in fact, I, I just got an email in, Rick, I haven't even sent it to you. And some 16-year-old guy who's 
just ripping apart John MacArthur on four issues and wants me to answer all four questions. And, you know, I want to help this young man, but usually we ask people to limit it to one question because we want to give people an opportunity to have their questions answered. But you will not find two preachers who agree 100% on everything. But there is a line to be drawn on some issues. And uh, these are important issues. Uh, well, so. it must have been a recent thing, this uh, trans dispensationalism, because uh, Reginald from Goose Creek, South Carolina, had the, pretty much the same question, and yeah. you just covered it. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, that should answer his question as well. Pablo from Pooler, Georgia, writes in Acts 8, verses 14 to 17, we read that Peter and John went to Samaria to check out the reports that the Samaritans had received the word of God. When they got there, they found it to be as reported, but that the Samaritans had only been baptized in Jesus' name, but not received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So they laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit fell on them. If once one believes the Spirit then indwells the believer, why then didn't the Samaritans receive the Spirit until the apostles arrived? Is it possible that it's talking about the individual gifts of the Spirit, and is it to be understood that the Spirit was indwelling at the moment of believing? What am I missing? Well, throughout the book of Acts, there's a number of events that were temporary in nature and transitional in nature that have to be uh, weighed in light of the epistles. And, of course, the best best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so what we're looking at in Acts 8 is really headquarters for a couple of groups of people. Let me just read the text now. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard, that Samaria had received the word of God. So there was a response to the preaching of the gospel. People are being converted. In fact, the first 13 verses really describe that and what was happening. And when they heard they received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Um, So Peter and John, to the apostles, after people heard the message of salvation and believed, and you can read of their receptivity in the first half of Acts, of course, the exception was Simon the sorcerer, who was not truly converted, but people were believing in genuinely confessing their faith by baptism. Uh, And so they came down, and the Bible says they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And, of course, this is what Simon the Sorcerer saw, and he is the exception to the rule. He wanted to pay for money. And so we have the term in church history called simony, where people are in the ministry for the money, and it comes, of course, from this man, Simon the Sorcerer. Remember who the Samaritans were. They were a despised people. And Samaria was the province north of Judea. And so it was unusual, of course, for the Lord Jesus to want to go straight through Samaria because he wanted to meet a woman at a well who's going to become somewhat of an evangelist. And a whole group of people are going to find Jesus as Lord. And and they say, well, we believe not just because of what she said, but we recognize that he's the savior of the whole world. And the Samaritans were hated by Jews because they had intermarried with Gentiles, and Gentiles didn't like Jews, and so they were just pretty much a despised people. And for a Jewish person, of course, when they had to go north into the Galilean region, so between Judea and Samaria, north of that you have Galilee, where Christ spent a lot of his time, 
you would either um, go along the uh, bank of the Jordan River and just uh, go through Perea and bypass Samaria altogether, or you go all the way out to the coast and you therefore encounter very few Samaritans and you'd make your way north into Galilee. Jesus goes straight through it because he loves people, cares about people. He's not a respecter of persons. So when the church is born in Acts 2, you have people who are waiting in the upper room for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And they, of course, were all 120 of them believers, but their experience is unique. This is not a model for us to follow, that we first get saved like they were. They were believers in Jesus. And then we wait for this work of the Holy Spirit. And again, they they take a couple of passages, some of our Pentecostal friends, and they bleed them together, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And they say they'd already received the Holy Spirit and what they were waiting for. Um, and Acts 2 was different from uh, John 20. They were waiting for a deeper work of the Holy Spirit. No, they were waiting for the first encounter with the Holy Spirit. They had not yet received the Holy Spirit because Jesus at the ascension then goes to heaven and he sends the Spirit to indwell the church. So this was the first reception of the Holy Spirit. When you come to Acts 10, you have the first Gentiles who are converted Cornelius and his family and friends that gather. And interestingly, what happens to them is identical to what happens to uh, those in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. And so Peter is preaching and he's showing how Jesus is the promised Messiah. And we read in Acts uh, 10 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers, that would be the six Jews that were accompanying Peter, who came with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. And so there was an outward manifestation of the giving of the Spirit to affirm that the Gentiles were on the same level as Jews. And Paul unfolds this theologically in Ephesians 2 that God has removed the dividing wall between Jew and Greek. He's made us into one people, and uh, this is evidence. But again, in Acts 8, sandwiched between these two events, between the first Jews and the first Gentiles, are the first Samaritans. And so I think the reason God allowed um, them not to initially receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of their receiving the message of salvation is God wanted to authenticate their experience through the apostles so that there would not potentially be two churches. Well, you know, there's those Samaritans over there. They can get along and worship on their own. No, when the apostles came, they were affirming that this hated, despised race were on the same level as any Jew and that God had made us into one body. And so after they believed, they received the Holy Spirit. Is that a model for us today? Well, Pentecostals and Charismatics and all the offshoots that come from them, and there is a difference between Pentecostals and Charismatics, but again, they're similar in their doctrine and that they affirm that, you know, you get this second work of grace. And they actually learned this from John Wesley, a Methodist who himself never said he experienced the second work of grace, but he always thought it was out there, and some of the seeds of his theology out of Wesleyan theology comes the Pentecostal movement. 
Um, but this is a headquarters verse. And by the way, this is the verse that Roman Catholics use for the sacrament of confirmation, that these were believers. And so today when the bishop lays hands on you and speaks over you, you receive the Holy Spirit. Well, again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so the Bible is clear by the epistles. And so we have to interpret the book of Acts from the epistles. It's not that we cannot learn doctrine from the book of Acts. Surely we can, but it has to be weighed in light of the epistles because there were some events in the Acts of the Apostles that were unique to that time frame. It was a transitory period. And so, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, turning there very quickly, it says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So notice the order. You listen to the message of truth, which is defined here as the gospel of your salvation. It's articular. The gospel, of course, is the power of God for salvation, Romans 1. Well, what is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation? I delivered to you as a first importance of the gospel that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. So when you hear the message of the death, burial, and resurrection, and you believe, you're sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. By the way, that speaks of our eternal security. That speaks of the fact that once we're saved, we are saved forever. In fact, Paul makes a similar statement in a parallel passage in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm turning over to verse 22. He says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. How did he anoint us? Who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. So the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge. He's given as a down payment, as an earnest. You know, when you put down earnest money, you are saying, look, I'm putting $1,000 down because I'm serious about this contract I'm making on this home. And if I don't come through in my promise, you get to keep my $1,000. Well, the Holy Spirit is God's earnest money, so to speak. He's God's guarantee. He is God's promise that the work he began he will complete. And so later on in Ephesians, he says, we are sealed with him for the day of redemption. So once you're sealed with the spirit, you can't be unsealed. So you can't lose your salvation. You can't be born again and then unborn again, then born again, again, and so on. God speaks of our security, but the order here is significant. You listen, you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. This is, by the way, is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 he assumes that every believer has had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. That happens the moment you believe, you are identified. The word baptized here is not a reference, of course, to water, but the Holy Spirit. And we are identified with Christ's body through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So Paul can say in Romans 8, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not one of his. You're not even saved. Uh, a mark that you're saved is you are an indwelt by the Spirit. And by the way, that's the question Paul asks in Acts 19 of some of John's disciples. Hey, when you 
when, uh, let, let me just read it to you, because again, it's another verse. Catholics don't use this verse, but Pentecostals do for a, a two-stage kind of salvation plan. He comes to Ephesus and he found some disciples. Now, the word disciple is used of a learner. It's used sometimes of someone who's not even saved, but they're willing to learn. It's used of someone who's curious, someone who's committed. It's used in different ways. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He asked this question. We haven't even heard whether there's a Holy Spirit. Well, into what were you baptized? Well, we had John's baptism. In other words, these were people, Jews, who were in Israel, probably during one of the three feasts that they were required to go to, Deuteronomy 16 teaches. Um, and uh, they heard John preach, but they hadn't heard the fulfillment of what John preached. Maybe they heard, hey, Messiah is coming. Prepare your hearts. Get ready. And they didn't hear that Messiah has come. Not only has he come, his name is Yeshua. He died, he was buried, he was raised from the dead. And so they end up hearing the complete plan of salvation, and they believe. And, of course, because of that, they receive the Spirit, because now conversion has genuinely taken place, and they're born again, and they are baptized in the name of the triune God. Great question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we have Alberto from Savannah on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning, Dr. Colberg and Rick Porchner. My question is, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, said that you're saved by grace through faith, right? So you're saved by, by grace through faith. Now, once you get saved, you got eternal life. But, but, but what about where it says, uh, in John 17, this is eternal life that you know God, you know, and me and all that. So can a, can a, can a believer, uh, can a, once you said Christ, be saved and still not have a relationship with God? Uh, he, can, he, can, he, can he go out preaching, witnessing, be, be a, a fierce defender of the gospel, and has more courageous than Christians who claim to be Christians, and when he's fearless and, and he preaches sound doctrine, but still not have a relationship with God? Is that possible? All right, Rick, why don't you respond? It was a little difficult for me to hear in my headset. Did okay. You, can you translate that question sure. for me? Sure. So um, Alberto was indicating, of course, that, uh, you know, we are saved by grace through faith uh, alone, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And uh, then he went on to postulate, uh, well, if that's the case, can then um, a person who professes faith in Christ actually uh, simply take that profession, but never witness, never share his testimony. Um, you know, it, it, the, I guess it boils down to the question is, um, you know, salvation is by grace through faith alone, but uh, does the grace, uh, does faith alone suffice, or does it need to have some evidence of that salvation? Well, the connection was bad. I, I heard something different. I heard him say that at the end there, that if a person has not made a decision for Christ, could he still preach in Christ's name? So let's answer both sides of okay. it. Friend, when you call again, try to be on a good line if you can. The connection was very poor. With that said, uh, it's possible for an unbeliever to preach the gospel, and it's pro- possible for a believer to preach the gospel, and it's possible for a believer to be disobedient to sharing the gospel. So when someone is saved, they come to know the Lord in a personal way. As you referenced uh, John seventeen three. this is eternal life, that they may know you, 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this knowledge of God is obviously different from the knowledge that we referenced uh, from Romans chapter 1, that even though these hardcore pagan idol-worshiping Gentiles knew God, they didn't honor him as God. So all men know that God exists, but that's very different from someone who knows God in a personal, life-changing way, who's born from above. And that's what John 17, 3 is speaking of. And that's possible because of the promise of the new covenant. And so in Jeremiah 31, where he prophesies of a new covenant that is going to someday be realized by the average Jew, it's today realized only by the exceptional Jew, uh, Jewish believers, God has always had a remnant. Uh, they're, they're in the minority. Uh, but with that said, Gentiles today experience the new covenant. The book of Hebrews reminds us of that. Paul does in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying know the Lord why for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them how so declares the Lord because I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more so this is a promise that God makes to Israel and it's a binding promise because he'll go on to say that the God who gives his son for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars by night Uh, If these will disappear, then I will no longer have them as my people, as my nation. So God has not replaced the church with Israel. He's still committed to the Jewish people and to the fulfillment of this process and this promise. But because forgiveness has now been provided in time and space through the death and resurrection of Christ, the promise of the new covenant can be fully realized and we can know God on a level that people never knew him. Well, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. His old life has passed away. Everything's become new. And so when you're changed on the inside, uh, people know it, you know it, and you typically want to share it. Now, can a Christian have locked jaw? Sure. And so there's commands in scripture to be faithful to the stewardship, to the treasure that's described to Timothy as the gospel. We need to be good stewards of the gospel. And part of our accountability at the judgment of the just, what we call the Bema, uh, the judgment seat of Christ, is um, we're going to give an account, among other things, and how faithful we were as stewards of the gospel. God doesn't write the gospel in the sky. He doesn't have the rocks shout it. He gives individual believers the opportunity and privilege to be able to share it. So we should be doing everything in our power to reach out to an unbelieving world. Um, I told our people we have vacation Bible school coming up here at the end of July. If someone is listening, communitybiblechurch.us. But I told them on Sunday that approximately 80% of the children 12 and under, and I don't find it any different here in South Carolina. I see families all the time. I invite to church. They go nowhere. These young families aren't bringing their kids anywhere to church. And I said, look, when you see them out in town, say, hey, I see you have some young children. Uh, We're going to have a vacation Bible school. Maybe you would be interested in enrolling them and you give them a card. It will change a child's life. It might change the life of the parents. That's just an obedience issue. We should be doing whatever we can 
to reach a lost world for Christ. And so a believer, though, may not be faithful to that call. And that's the argument of Romans 1, uh, 13 through 17. I have a whole message on that. If this caller from Savannah wants to listen to it, go to searchthescriptures.org. Uh, click on Romans, listen to the message on Romans 1. I think I pick it up probably around verse 11, go through 17 or 18. I would only go through 17 because 18 starts another section. So that might be helpful to you. But it's also possible for an unbeliever to preach the good news. Uh, they are believers in their head only, but they haven't been transformed. And they may have all kinds of even false motives in order to make money, in order to get fame or whatever their false motive may be. And Jesus describes such people in Matthew 7, and he will declare to them, I never knew you, not I once knew you, but I never knew you. Depart from me who practice lawlessness. Or you could have someone like Apollos who had an incomplete knowledge of the gospel. And so Priscilla and Aquila come alongside and say, well, you've got an incomplete message. You've only gone as far as John the Baptist. Let me tell you what's happened. And so he was preaching as best he knew, but was not converted, though I think if he had a heart attack and died, he would have went to heaven. Um, But with that said, um, because of the principle that we uh, have already underscored, light responded to brings more light. And so he was responding to everything he knows, and you have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven. So maybe it wouldn't be right to say if he had had a heart attack, he would have went to heaven. That would be better said of the people in the upper room who hadn't received the Holy Spirit because they'd all believed in Yeshua. But Apollos, because his heart was open, got the complete message, and then with great power began to preach the full message concerning what John had predicted was going to happen but it had now happened in time and space. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Very good. We've got another live caller. Let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Burry. Good morning, Rick. How are you guys? Good. Thank you. Thank you for calling. How can we be of help? I have a question. I was out of town last weekend and looking for a church to attend. And I was looking on a specific church's uh, page about what we believe. And a specific sentence about the Lord's Supper caught me off guard, and I wasn't sure what to think about it. So here, I'll read it. It says, We believe that the Lord's Supper is an ongoing covenant renewal for the people of God, in which we affirm our unity as the redeemed, commemorate the covenant of redemption, and enjoy the presence of the Redeemer. So I guess I was wondering your thoughts specifically on the covenant renewal aspect of it, and I'd like to take your answer off air, but okay. Yeah, so um, they are probably of the Reformed faith that has kind of a modified view between the Roman Catholic sacri- uh, sacramental view of um, the Lord's table with those who would simply refer to the Lord's table as an ordinance. Uh, What's the difference? Well, in Roman Catholicism, of course, the sacraments have a part in your salvation. They would argue that uh, through the sacraments, grace is given, and that grace allows you to do works that will then allow you to achieve salvation. And so, uh, of course, they have basically taken grace and they've mixed it and muddied it with works Instead of work simply being the fruit of conversion, it becomes the means. But they'll say, well, we believe in salvation by grace. 
And what they mean by that is grace is given through the sacraments that then strengthen you to do the works. But of course, it's the sin of presumption in Roman Catholicism to say, you know that you're saved. No one, they say, can know that because you won't know until you died. And and this is why purgatory, which becomes an inventive doctrine by the Roman Catholic Church, that they hung over people's heads, that they sold indulgences uh, on so that you might escape it, uh, it becomes an intermediate place when someone dies. That if they didn't do enough works provided through the grace of the sacramental system, then you suffer for a period of time, and then you're released from purgatory and brought into heaven. All bad, false, rotten doctrine. Um, those in the Reformed faith, because they're coming out of Roman Catholicism. So you've got guys like Luther and Calvin, and and there's a lot of Catholic doctrine mixed in with some of their teachings. And so unlike the Anabaptists that were a little more pure and rejecting of Roman Catholic doctrine, Luther and Calvin took some of those doctrines and they just put a different spin on them. And so today we have replacement theology. So we have, say, a John Piper who argues that the church has replaced uh, Israel, that there's no future for Israel, that there's no significance that God has gathered Jews from a hundred nations and brought them back into the land that there's no coming future literal tribulation period. What you read about, he argues in Matthew 24, is all historical. It happened in the first century, and it basically all ended in 70 AD. So, you know, that's Reformed doctrine in reference to your eschatology. Reformed doctrine in reference to baptism, they would not say what the Catholic Church says in the Baltimore Catechism, that baptism is a sacrament that washes away original sin and instills salvation to the soul, they would say that, no, it's either prevenient grace, so Luther and Lutherans today practice infant baptism, but they call it a sacrament. Not on the same level that Roman Catholics do, but they call it a sacrament and that pre-salvation grace is given due to the hardness of man's heart, so that he might later believe and be saved. Well, certainly there's a work of grace that transpires before we are born again, because there's none who seeks God, no, not one. Jesus can say, unless the Father draws a person, no one is going to become a believer. So there's truth in that, but I don't think you can build that out of the sacrament, as they would call it, of baptism. They do the same with the Lord's table. They do not teach the real presence. They do not teach what's called transubstantiation, that the substance is literally transformed into the literal body and blood of Christ, nor do they teach um, typically consubstantiation, though some uh, would continue to teach that who'd call themselves Reformed, but for the most part, just Lutherans teach that. And so Luther's illustration of the Lord's table was that his presence was not literally in the elements, but in and around the elements. And so the illustration Martin Luther used is just as you took a piece of metal and you heated it up in a fire till it glowed red hot, the metal is not the body of Christ, but the heat emanating in and around the metal, his presence is there. Well, you know, again, I, it's interesting. I, I don't think that's true. Do I think uh, we renew as this statement of faith that you just read to me? 
our covenant. Well, yeah, we're, we're remembering the Lord. We are reaffirming every time we go to the Lord's table that we're not our own, that we've been bought with a price, that we are to uh, declare his return. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this body, you uh, are declaring that he is Lord, that he's coming again, Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 11. So yeah, there is a covenant. Again, they like to use the term covenant in the Reformed faith. It's one of their favorite words, and they have all this series of covenants. And there's nothing wrong with covenant. The word covenant or diatheke in Greek, it means testament. And so our Bible is divided into two halves, the old diatheke, the old covenant, the old deal, the old testament, and the new covenant, the new testament. And so uh, the promise of the new covenant we just read from Jeremiah 31. But I I don't think that, um, you know, certainly there's any grace that is given in participating in the Lord's table than there is in any other act of obedience. Now, it is an act of obedience, and Christ commands us to celebrate the Lord's table. And it is to be done in the local assembly. It's not something you do in your home. And uh, let's celebrate the Lord's table. It's a local church ordinance, clearly. And I have a whole handout on this in my course on ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And we walk through what the Lord's table is, what it isn't, and so on. Um, But with that said, whenever you obey God, you're humbling yourself. And you are availing yourself to the grace of God. God gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. So in one sense, it's correct to say that grace is given at the Lord's table, but to say that it's given in a special way, in a unique way, I think that's a stretch. It's an act of obedience. And certainly, it is a special time when God's people slow down, they stop, they reflect. It's not something that's just tacked on at the end of the service but it's something that is reflectively done to make sure that our hearts are clean because we're not to partake in an unworthy manner. And uh, while uh, the King James is a great translation for the 17th century, it's a little confusing in modern English because what they meant by damnation was not always the same that we mean today. And so today, by damnation, we are referring to the eternal state of a lost person. And so sometimes, based on the King James translation, people have said, well, look, if you participate in the Lord's table as an unbeliever, you're drinking damnation unto yourself. Actually, contextually, you'd know it, even if you didn't know any Greek, that that's not what's in view. He's dealing with saved people. And he's dealing with them participating in an unworthy manner, namely with unconfessed, unrepented, known sin in their hearts, taking the very elements that are symbolic of the price that is paid, that picture that we're not our own, and yet you participate in the Lord's table with rebellion in the heart. You're drinking judgment onto yourself. You're drinking God's discipline onto yourself. There is different expressions of judgment in the Bible. And while on the one hand a Christian is not judged for his sin, he is judged for his works, and God disciplines those whom he loves. And so some of the Corinthians were weak, sick, some had died early because they had participated in the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. So what they say there is somewhat 
covenantal in reformed theology, but is it bad? No. Would I not participate in that church? Certainly not. That would not be a showstopper. Okay, we've got three and a half minutes. I think we can get one more question in that just came in. They dictated it. Uh, They've got a friend who has a pastor who teaches that Jesus did not descend into hell. What scripture would you use to to prove that Jesus indeed descended into hell? Well, I have some messages on this that might be useful to you where I walk through this. And let me say probably where this pastor is coming from. He is trying to affirm that when Jesus, um, well, he says he didn't descend into hell because he's really reacting against Roman Catholics who say that Jesus's descent into hell was part of the payment for sin. And clearly it was not. Um, Jesus, I believe, did descend into hell, but not to pay for sin. Uh, he shouted from the cross to telestai, meaning it is finished. He completely, totally, eternally on the cross paid for our sin. And you can't, uh, there's no and ifs or buts about it. And so for Christ also, First Peter 3, uh, died for sins once for all, the just, that's him, for the unjust, that's us. Why? So that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but here it is, but made alive in the spirit in which also in his spirit, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now, please note what it does not say. It does not say he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the flesh. Now that's true. And that's affirmed a few verses later because it says that through the resurrection, verse 21, he is now seated at the right hand of the father. But what Peter is doing here is he's describing a preaching mission that Jesus went on while his body lay in that cold tomb between the time he was laid there before the Sabbath began on Friday and before he came out early Sunday morning, he went in his spirit to make proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Who are these spirits? Spirits who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting the days of Noah. There's a group of fallen angels that Christ went and preached to because they were in a special place. Peter, second Peter calls it Tartarus. Uh, Jude says they're in eternal chains. Uh, They're a group of people who did not witness Christ's victory over the whole demonic realm, angelic people who needed to be told what took place. I have a whole sermon on it. Go to searchthescriptures.org, click on first Peter and listen to the message on First Peter three eighteen to twenty two, and I'll walk you through this. I'll walk you through the book of Jude. I'll walk you through Second Peter. I'll walk you through Genesis six. It all fits together like a beautiful uh, crossword puzzle because God's Spirit wrote it all. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us today here on the Bible Line. Mm-hmm. 